to open up to a new gospel this morning, Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Uh, What we're going to be discussing this morning is something very, very unique. It is found in all three Gospels. We're going to be talking about the mystery of the Gethsemane cup. I said all three of the Gospels. I meant all three of the synoptic Gospels. But mostly we're going to be in Matthew this morning. I do want to settle our hearts and have us have a serious um, atmosphere in the room this morning because we are coming upon very, very serious ground as we get into Gethsemane. There is nothing that parallels in eternity past or in eternity future what we see for what we have presented for us in um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, I don't know, Louise, have you started the tape? You can go ahead and start standing back there. Have you started? Okay. Uh, before we go to prayer, I do want to tell you eight or seven reasons why nothing in existence has ever paralleled the seriousness of this scene which we come to this morning. Number one, one reason is because of the strong emotion from which it sprang. There is deep, deep emotion in this garden scene. And the emotion is from the Lord Jesus himself. It's emotion expressed even more than when he was upon the cross. We see him, a second reason why this is so unique, we see the Lord Jesus on his face, prostrate on the ground, with his face on the ground, praying fervently. And nowhere else do we see him like that in the gospel records. Third reason this is so unique is because his prayer time is interrupted by himself. He interrupts his prayer time three times. He repeats his prayer three times, but he also interrupts his own prayer to seek companionship. And of course, we all know that in this prayer, the Lord literally sweat out from his body great drops of blood. Fifth reason is because in this prayer time, we, the God the Father sends him a strengthening angel. And six is because, and this is what becomes apparent to us, as strange as it sounds initially, but not as we get into it and discuss it, but the incarnate Son of God's will in this prayer is not precisely the will of God the Father. The incarnate Son's will is not the same as the will of the Father. And the seventh reason why this prayer, this uh, scene is so unique is because God answers His Son's prayer with a no. And that's what makes this so unique. Let's... Um, One more thing I wanted to to share with you is something I read by one commentator that I thought I needed to share because it's good. God had one son without sin, but he had no son without sorrow. And I thought that was a very good way to put it. We do have a high priest who can empathize with the feelings of our infirmities. We have trouble empathizing with the feelings of his infirmities and what he went through in Gethsemane. I don't think we can even begin to comprehend the anguish of his soul in the garden. 
He was indeed a man of sorrows, acquainted, well acquainted with grief. So let's open our hearts now to the things that are truly, truly mysterious and really impossible for any human mind to begin to understand. Let's ask the Spirit that he would open our minds and hearts to understand, perhaps in a way today, a, a little bit better way than we ever have before. All right, would you bow with me? Father, our hearts are drawn to you with the great sense of our need because we know that we have no strength in ourselves to be any different than the disciples on the night that they spent with your son in the Garden of Gethsemane. We, as with them, so often have willing spirits, but the weakness of our flesh far too often, far too often wins the victory. So, Lord, we need the grace of our Savior. We need his intercessory prayers on our behalf to keep us from falling to temptation. The temptation especially to fall asleep spiritually when we should be alert and watching, knowing that our adversary, the devil, stalketh about seeking whom he might devour and who he might sift as wheat. Lord, may we not simply be sitting and tarrying, but watching and praying, and even more so knowing that the great day of Christ's return is imminent, and we surely do not want to be caught ashamed and sleeping at at your coming. And Father, now we ask that you would do here this morning what we cannot do for ourselves. Speak to us through your word about your wonderful Son, And do so by way of your spirit and draw us ever nearer to thee. For we pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. Well, we have been in the Gospel of John, can you believe this? All the way since Lesson 149. (laughs) That was in our Life of Christ 6 book. We've been in the Gospel of John. I went back and I could not believe how long we'd been in John. And the reason for that is because John was the only Gospel writer to give us the contents of the Lord's farewell discourse, or, you know, his Paschal discourse, his upper room discourse, and he was the only one to give us the contents of his high priestly prayer in John 17. Um... It actually, if you're you're in Matthew, did I tell you Matthew 26? Okay, if you would look, and you might want to put a little asterisk there, but between Matthew 26 verse 35 and verse 36, between those two verses, put a little asterisk and, and right there the contents of John 14 to 17. Because between those two verses, that's what we had. That's why we had to leave Matthew, Mark, and Luke and go to John to find out what happened between verses 35 and 36. So John was the only one who gave us the whole upper room discourse. He's the only one who gave us the Lord's high priestly prayer. But he does not give us the record of the Lord's time spent in the Garden of Gethsemane. He does, however, give us the timing of the events. Now, I'm not going to have you go there, but in John 18, verse 1, John tells us that when, it, when he fit, the Lord finished his high priestly prayer, that it was then he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden. By the way, John's the only one who tells us it was a garden. It was a garden of what? Flowers? 
Now, it was a garden of olive trees on the Mount of Olives. But John says that the Lord and his men went over the, the Kidron Brook, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. So John is the one who gives us the timing of events, all right? However, then, in verse 2 of chapter 18, John just goes on to give us the arrival of the betrayer Judas with the arresting party. He makes absolutely no mention of the Lord's time spent in Gethsemane. Now, why would that be? Why would John be the only gospel writer not to give us the account of the Garden of Gethsemane when the Lord prayed? Well, besides the fact that John was inspired to stress the deity of Jesus, right? And Gethsemane is a place where we see Jesus as the submissive servant submitting to the will of his father. It's also true, besides that reason, it's also true that John was the last one to record his gospel record. And by that time, the Gethsemane prayer had already been recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John puts his focus on other matters that take place in Gethsemane, which Lord willing we'll be looking at next week. In John 18, verses 2 to 9, he tells us things that the other three guys don't tell us. And they are things that center on Jesus Christ, the King, the sovereign King, God. I can't wait to get to that lesson next week. Well, there's another reason as well, which I'll get to later on in our lesson. But right now, I pray for me that I can speak fast because there's so much information I want to give to you. I don't want to leave anything out. But let's right now just read Matthew 26, looking at verses 36 to 46. And then I am going to also read Luke because Mark is very much like Matthew. They're almost identical. But Luke tells us something that the other two guys don't. So let's begin with Matthew 26, starting at verse 36, where it says, Then cometh Jesus with them, with who? His disciples, unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Did you know Jesus was a southerner? (laughs) Yonder. Can you believe he said yonder? And he really wasn't a southerner. He was from Galilee. Nah, he was a southerner because he was born in Bethlehem. All right, I guess he was like me. He was from both. All right, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. What were their names? James and John. And began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now Mark tells us sore amazed. How do you like that expression? He was sore amazed. Verse 38, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father. Mark says Abba, that he said Abba, Father. But we have to remember he prayed three times, so he had different ways he referred to his father. O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. 
He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Obviously, there was a little bit of space of time between verses 45 and 46. He said, sleep on, take your rest. So they slept a little bit. And then when he knew Judas was there, he said, get up. He he that betrays me is at hand. All right. Did you ever stop to realize that between the existence of the original garden where mankind in Adam fell and the final garden where redeemed man in Christ will eternally dwell, there was another extremely critical garden. It was the Garden of Olive Trees located on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Mount of Olives. It's covered with olive trees. Have any of you been there? Anybody here been there? I have been there, and Betty, you've been there. Okay, it is still to this day covered with olives. And some of those olive trees, olive trees live to be like 2,000. They just live forever. And some of those olive trees are probably from the same olive trees. Now, we know that when Titus Vespasian came and destroyed um, Jerusalem in 70 AD, that he cut down all the trees around Jerusalem, which would have included those olive trees. In order to make crosses, they literally crucified thousands of Jewish people at that time. And there were no trees left in Jerusalem and the nearby vicinity. But the olive tree root is so deep that they wouldn't have taken the time to pull up the roots. And so from those roots would come back those same olive trees. And when you're there and you look at those olive trees, you you can believe that they are as old as Jesus, you know, going back to Jesus. And it's one of those places where when you're in that garden, you you know that you're in the same place where Jesus was when he had his his uh, agony here in the garden. Well, anyway, so between the first garden called Eden and the final garden, which is actually a garden city called the New Jerusalem, there is this extremely important um, garden of Gethsemane. And this is where the Lord Jesus willingly accepted the cup of suffering and death necessary to fulfill God's redemptive plan for mankind. In that garden called Gethsemane, the second Adam submitted to the Father's will to become the curse of sin in our place so that those who have been dismissed from the first garden, Eden, are able to enter into the final garden of heaven in the new Jerusalem and dwell there forever. Think about some of the comparisons and contrasts that there are between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. In Eden's garden, the first Adam, his self-will, brought mankind's ruin. In Gethsemane's garden, the second Adam, and Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, the second Adam's agonizing selflessness made man's restoration possible. In the first garden, 
a once perfect Adam decided that it was man's will be done. In the second garden, the perfect, the forever perfect second Adam said, what? Not my will, but thy will be done. In the first garden, sin brought corruption. In the second garden, sin was conquered. In the first garden, troubled souls hid from God. Remember when Adam, Adam and Eve tried to hide from God? In the second garden, the troubled soul sought God. Interesting to notice, too, that although, I mean, that, not although, interesting to notice that the first garden, Eden, um, is described as eastward of Eden. If you go and look at Genesis 2.8, it said eastward of Eden. And Gethsemane was located where? From Jerusalem. Eastward of Jerusalem. It was about three-fourths of a mile from the eastern side of Jerusalem. In both gardens, who entered subtly? Satan. Remember now, Judas, when he enters the garden, who is possessing him? Satan. In both gardens, sweat is mentioned. Remember the curse on man? That would be by the sweat of his brow that he'd have to work. In both gardens, the ground is mentioned. In both gardens, angels are mentioned. In both gardens, there's even a sword mentioned. You know, next week we're going to see Peter whip out a little sword, cut off a guy's ear. Also in both gardens, blood was shed. The blood of an innocent sacrifice. And in both gardens, humans fell to temptation by the weakness of their flesh. Well... As I said earlier, from John 18.1, we learned that the Lord and his men crossed the Kidron Brook. And Kidron is spelled two different ways in the Bible, C-E-D-R-O-N or K-I-D-R-O-N. And in Hebrew, Kidron means um, murky or dark, means murky or dark. And at this particular time of the year, which was at the Passover, this brook, most of the year it was dry, but at Passover it was a flowing, full stream. Also at this time of the year, guess what that brook was full of? The blood. Now they had a drain system that when they sacrificed all those Passover lambs, the blood flowed down this drain system and into the Kidron Brook. So think of that. As Jesus is crossing over it, it's flowing, it's high. And it's full of blood. And it is from Matthew and Mark that we learn the name of the garden. Luke and John don't tell us, but Matthew and Mark tell us that it's Gethsemane. And also that it was located on the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane happens to be an Aramaic word. Does anybody know what it means? Your Bibles might tell you. Footnotes. Oil press. So there was obviously an oil press somewhere in that garden of olive trees and the the oil press would press the olives in order to to get from them the precious virgin oil okay now that's interesting because i'm sure the holy spirit inspired john to write all that to cause us to think about king david now remember king david was a picture in type of the lord jesus in many ways not his sin but in many ways and remember when he was fleeing from jerusalem 
because of the rebellion of his son Absalom, that he also left out of the out of Jerusalem and went down and crossed over the Kidron River brook and climbed up to the Mount of Olives to encounter his passion. Of course, he was very troubled of soul as well. And so this causes us to think back to King David. And David was the one who wrote the words of Psalm 69. Now, I'm not going to take the time to do that now, but I want you to go home, and, and maybe it's part of your homework. I didn't look at what your homework was. Very interesting how David described his own experience that night and um, how it foretells of what Jesus encountered that same night. He crossed over the murky, Kidron, murky, dark, high waters of the Kidron into his hour of passion, which began at the place of the oil press. There, because Jesus was willing to be bruised and crushed and pressed for our iniquities, what came forth? Because he was willing to do that, what came forth? Well, the sweet, fresh oil, the Holy Spirit, which is now free to flow on all those who believe in him. So it's not without meaning that we, you know, these names, all the names in scripture have meaning. Gethsemane, oil press, Kidron, dark, murky, and do read Psalm 69. Now, although the Gospels don't specifically tell us this, it can be assumed that the Lord left eight of his men. Now, remember, he's only got 11 because Judas is already gone and on his way to uh, actually probably the upper room at this time. But he obviously left eight of his men at the entrance to the garden probably to guard it. But apparently they fell asleep, as did the other three he took with him, Peter, James, and John. And that's just apparent. We, we believe the other eight must have fallen asleep maybe at the gate to the garden. There, they say there, there was probably some kind of a fence or something around the garden, and he left them there. And if they weren't asleep, don't you think that one of them, even if one was awake, that he would have sounded the alarm when Judas with a, a cohort. <laughs> Wait till you find out how many men were in that arresting party. You just won't believe it. You just won't believe it. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of people coming with lanterns and swords and clubs. And and one of them, if they hadn't been sleeping, would have sounded the alarm. But apparently they were all sleeping, and Jesus is the one who said, come on, they're here. Well, after their arrival in the garden, the Lord gave his disciples four commands. But four of those, I mean, out of the four of those, two, only two were obeyed. And which ones do you think they were? Sit. (laughs) Sit and tarry. (laughs) The first command he gave to his disciples was sit, and they did obey that. They sat. The second command was likely given to all 11 of the disciples, and it's found twice in Luke. You know what? I forgot to read Luke, didn't I? I'm sorry. Let's quick read Luke 22. told you I was going to read it, and then I plumb forgot. Luke 22. And uh, let's look at verses... What are they? 39 to 46. Luke 22, starting verse 39. And he came out and went as he was wont. He did this every night of the, of the um, 
Passion Week, he would go to the Mount of Olives on his way to to uh, Bethany. Sometimes, also during his earlier ministry, he would spend the whole night in Gethsemane. So Judas knew where to find him. He knew that he would often go there. So it says, as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. Verse 40, and when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. That's an interesting expression, sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Notice he began and ended his little record there with that pray that ye enter not in temptation. Luke did that in verse 40 and 46. Okay, now back to where I was. Twice we find in Luke that he said that pray that ye enter not in temptation. The events that were so soon to come upon these men necessitated prayer. If they could see with eyes like Jesus could see, they would be able to see demons hovering everywhere. They were about to engage in deep spiritual warfare like never has existed before. And so they needed to be praying if they were going to gain victory in the temptations that were going to be coming upon them. However, all 11 of the disciples failed miserably when it came to this second command to pray. They may have started to pray, you know, as they sat down, they might have started praying, but their eyes were heavy, Mark tells us, or Matthew tells us. And as the physician Luke tells us, what did he say? It wasn't long before they were all sleeping for sorrow. What does that mean? That's interesting. Yeah, and, but have you ever gone, when you're in deep trouble, have you ever just wanted to go to sleep? Kind of to numb your mind from thinking about things? All of the anxiety and the sorrow of the past few days, and especially of the past few hours, when they had heard Jesus say what they were going to do and all the horrible things, they were, he was going to be betrayed, they were going to scatter, Peter was going to deny, he was going to be crucified. All of that had been physically and emotionally draining on those men. To be victorious in prayer often requires a battle with our our physical bodies, doesn't it? And from with physical fatigue. And when you're tired and when you're sorrowful, it's like all you can do to keep your eyes open and your mind alert and keep praying. The spirit might be willing, but what's the truth of the matter? This flesh is so weak. Well, the Lord's third command was very similar to the first one. To the eight at the gate, he said, sit ye here. And to the three, he took further with him into the garden. He said, tarry ye here. He didn't tell them to sit. (laughs) He said, tarry here. And they did do that. They did do that. So they obeyed two out of the four commands. They waited for him as he went a stone's cast from them to pray. You know how far that is, they say? Depending on how far a person can throw a stone, it's about 30 to 50 yards away. So they could see him over there. 
they could see him. He wanted to be alone when he prayed, and yet he also wanted them to be nearby. He wanted their companionship. I mean, he'd been empathizing with their feelings of infirmities. Now he wanted some little companionship and a little compassion, a little closeness from his men. He may have wanted for them to even see his agony, you know, from a a little bit of a distance. He he wanted their, their compassion. He wanted them to witness. And for themselves, he wanted them to be praying. He knew that they also needed to be praying for themselves. Not so much that he's asking for them to pray for him. He's asking for them to pray for themselves that they don't fall into temptation. But they failed him, didn't they? You know, it's interesting. I was talking about Psalm 69 a minute ago that David wrote when he was fleeing from Absalom. In Psalm 70, at 69.20, it says this, and you can hear Jesus. These are Jesus' words through David. He says, I am full of heaviness, and I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And I looked for comforters, but I found none. That's Psalm 69, verse 20. Well, he also wanted them watching. His, his fourth command was watch with me. And the word watch in the Greek literally means to abstain from sleep, to be vigilant and guard against danger. So the word really has two duties associated with it. Stay awake and stay alert. The disciples were to stay awake and alert against any threatening dangers, both physically and spiritually, but even more importantly, spiritually. As we already know, they failed to stay awake, so obviously they failed to stay alert to the coming dangers because they failed to watch with Christ. Later on, they failed to walk with Christ. What did they do instead? They scattered. They ran. If they had not been snoozing, they may not have scattered. (laughs) If Peter had not dozed, he may not have denied. If they had watched and prayed, they would have been far better prepared for the temptations that were lurking in the dark night shadows. Now, this is the third time that Jesus separated three of the men from the others for for them to share in something special. He wanted to obviously teach these three leaders of the group so that they would in turn later on teach the others what they had learned. Remember the first time he pulled them aside to share something special with him was when he raised from the dead Jairus's 12-year-old daughter. They were the only ones to go into the house and witness her resurrection from the dead. Also, he took with them, these three, he took them with him to where? The Mount of Transfiguration, where they were able to behold his unveiled glory. And now here is the third time he takes them a little bit further into the garden, hopefully wanting them to be his companions of compassion with him in his agony. Um, It's interesting that all three of those special occasions had to do with death. At Jairus' house, the Lord proved he was the victor over death. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he demonstrated that he would be glorified through death. 
He talked about his exodus, and they they were able to see his you know a preview of his glory. And in Gethsemane, what does he do? He surrenders to his death and to all that his death would entail for him. Some have said that it was very um, appropriate for the inner circle disciples to be Peter, James, and John, because if you think of those three guys, they were the ones who kind of put themselves above the rest. Remember Peter said, oh, the rest of these might um, scatter from you, but I never would. You know, I'm different. And what did James and John want to do? They wanted to be the ones that sit on his right and left hand when he came into his kingdom. They even sent their mother to ask. <laughs> Can you imagine? Grown-up guys sending their mother. Um, and then he said, well, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink? And yeah, we can. So he takes these three guys. That's interesting. But also, it's interesting because James was the first apostle to die. John was the last apostle to die. And Peter, they say, died the most agonizing death. At his own request, he was crucified upside down. And it just doesn't get any worse than that physically. Another interesting point is that these three special experiences of Peter, James, and John really illustrate to us what what the Apostle Paul was speaking of in Philippians 3.10 when he said that I may know him. Mount of Transfiguration. And the power of his resurrection, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, and the fellowship of his sufferings, Gethsemane. Interesting. Meditate on that one a little bit. Well, from Matthew, we learn of the commencement of the Lord's sorrow. It says, look at verse 37. Are you back in Matthew 26? Look at verse 37. It says, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful, began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now, I want to mention something that is very interesting that we may have forgotten about because we talked about it, it seems like long ago. Even though at the beginning of this lesson I told you that John does not record for us the Lord's agony in Gethsemane, right? He's the only one who doesn't record it. However, it was from John that we had a preview of the Lord's sorrow in Gethsemane. Will you flip back or forward to John 12 for a minute? John 12. We had there in John 12 a quick... Very quick unveiling of the essence of the Lord's struggle, which now culminates in Gethsemane. Now, I know this was a long time ago that we discussed this, but guess what? It was just at the end of Monday of the Passion Week. So from where we are in our study of the Lord's life, we're in the early wee hours of Thursday morning. But this was Monday evening. So it wasn't that long ago in his life. And do you remember? What did he do on Monday? He went in Monday morning straight to the temple from Bethany and he cleansed cleansed the temple. Well, it was later on that afternoon that there were some Greeks, one of my favorite accounts, seeking Greeks. (laughs) There were some Greeks who were seeking Jesus. And they went to Philip because he had a Greek name. They went to Philip and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. 
Philip took them to Andrew. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. So together, Philip and Andrew brought these Greeks to the Lord. And then it was for the very first time that Jesus said, the hour is come. Let's see, what verse is that? 23, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he went on to talk about a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying before it can bring forth much fruit. And he talked about the one who loves his life will lose it, but the one who hates his life will gain it and bring forth fruit. Um, And then he said this, he said, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Lord, let this cup pass from me? But for this cause came I unto this hour. And then a very short prayer. What did he pray? Father, glorify thy name. That was a preview of the Gethsemane sorrow. And John alone recorded it for us. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord's statement there tells us what it was that caused the Lord's pain, what troubled his soul, which then came to full fruition in Gethsemane. You see, the request of those Greeks to see him, which really means they wanted to know him, that request triggered the troubling of his soul because it was a reminder to him of the nearness of the cross. It brought to his mind a vision of the whole outside Greek world, Gentile world, and the millions upon millions of yet future Gentiles who would come to him hungry for the the, the thing that only he could give, which is what? Eternal life. But to give them that life, what would he have to do? In order to bring forth much fruit, just like that corn of wheat, he would have to die. And the thought of his impending death troubled his soul. And now, just a few days later, two and a half days later, as he's entering into Gethsemane, all the horrors of the impending cross come pressing down on his soul again except this time he knows there's no more time remaining he knew that even at that very moment satan was on his way in judas with a whole host of men who hated him a dark cloud loomed suddenly and overshadowed him so in john 12:27 With a large crowd gathered around him, Jesus had said, Now is my soul troubled. And in Gethsemane, just a few days later, to Peter, James, and John, he says, and he's really opening up his heart to them. He's really sharing something he didn't share very often. He's giving them an inner look into his mind and heart. He says to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful. How sorrowful? Even unto death. Matthew, go back to Matthew now. Matthew 26, 38. Even unto death. I want to look at some of the words in the original language to get a a more in-depth understanding of just how troubled our Lord was. First of all, the two English words, exceeding sorrowful, in Greek, it's just one word, okay? And it's a word from which we get our English word for periphery. 
So it literally carries the idea of being completely surrounded by sorrow. He's circled roundabout with grief. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, in all ordinary miseries, there is generally some loophole of escape, some breathing place for hope. But in our Lord's grief, worse could not be imagined. End of quote. See, there was no escape for him. As he had said back to himself in John 12, he couldn't ask to be saved from this hour because it was for this very hour he came to earth. Didn't he say he came to seek and to save that which was lost? Didn't he come to give his soul a ransom for many? To give his life a ransom for many? So every escape route of sorrow was blocked for him. The soul sorrow was so exceeding bad. In fact, the Lord said to himself that it was, or to his men, that it was a sorrow even unto death. It was a sorrow, in other words, that could kill. It was a sorrow that could kill. It didn't kill him, did it? It didn't kill him there in Gethsemane, but he literally did sweat drops of blood. It might have killed a weaker man. It might have killed a man who didn't lay down his own life and raise it back up again. But it was that kind of grief. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews described for us in Hebrews 5, 7. I want you to look at this. So find Hebrews 5, if you would, please. It speaks of this time in Gethsemane. The author of Hebrews tells us a little bit more about Gethsemane. So I'll wait till you get there. Hebrews 5, 7. Talking about the Lord Jesus. And it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him, unto God, that was able to save him from what? Death. And was heard in that he feared or in that he reverentially submitted to God's will. This everyone agrees, is speaking about the Lord's time of prayer in Gethsemane. Cry, strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death. What kind of death? Well, some say their physical death. Sweating drops like blood that he could have died. And so he's praying to God to save him from physical death. Others say that it went even further than that, that the Lord was praying that he would save him from eternal spiritual death. You know, the Lord had to die, not only physically, but he had to die spiritually. Because Adam, the curse on Adam for disobeying was that he began to die physically and did die physically, and that also he was separated from God, right? spiritual death. Jesus would never have atoned for our sins if he didn't die both physically and spiritually. And in order to die, to pay the wages of sin, we would have to spend eternity in hell and never be able to pay for our own wages of sin. So on the cross, you see, he had to die in eternity for our sins. And he, his soul could have been separated from God his Father for eternity. 
But was it? We know he was separated from his God there during those dark hours when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But because he prayed that his father would save him from death, he's speaking of spiritual death, his father would bring him out from that separation from himself. See, otherwise Jesus would still be separated from his father, paying for our sins. Why did his father bring him out of that spiritual separation and bring him back into fellowship? So at the end on the cross, he commended himself to his father. He was back in fellowship with his father. It says, because he feared. He was heard, he heard because he feared, and in that is because he of his piety. He was answered because he was completely sinless. And this person. And that's getting into really deep theology. I hope you followed me there for a while, but that was really an eye opener for me this past week. Anyway, we have to move on. And besides the descriptions of his sorrow spoken directly by the Lord himself when he said, I'm exceedingly sorrowful unto death, um, and besides what we have in Hebrews, we also have other accounts of his sorrow given to us by um, the Holy Spirit through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus was very heavy. And again, those two English words are just one Greek word, which means much distressed with an intense a typical sorrow, a sorrow like none of us have ever encountered. It means that he was just completely weighed down with his sorrow. Mark says that he began to be sore amazed, which really means he was terrified. Can you imagine? Our Lord Jesus terrified of anything? He was terrified. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what was it specifically about the horrors of the cross that so troubled the soul of Christ. What caused all of this extreme sorrow and strong crying and, and terror, being terrified? Was it the Lord's fear of all the coming cruelties that he knew he would encounter? You know, not only the betrayal of one of his former friends, the, the treachery and betrayal of Judas, not only the miserable denials of Peter and the frightened scattering of all of the disciples, but also the willful um, blindness, the malice and the ingratitude of the Jews, the religious leaders, and the apathy of so many of the Jewish people. Was it because of all that he knew he would encounter physically on the cross and even before the cross with the scourging? Um... No, that was not it. You're all shaky. You know that it wasn't it. If the Lord had experienced this kind of tremendous sorrow because of all these coming cruelties to himself personally and physically, then he would come off as being inferior to many people who have put their faith in him and also have faced persecution and martyrdom with courage. And with strength. What about the two thieves that knew they were going to be crucified the next day with him? They didn't know about him, but they knew they were going to be crucified. Do you think that they were in their cells of blood that night? No. I'm sure they were anxious, but nothing like what the Lord went through. It is completely unthinkable that Jesus would be so weak in his spirit that he could not face rejection, abandonment, persecution, and death as nobly as many saints have. Think about those that were fed to lions and awful things that they did. Um, 
No. You know, on the cross, we never have one word of him complaining about his physical, or when he's scourged and everything that they do to him. He never complains. He doesn't say ouch or anything, right? The only thing he ever says that has to do with his physical suffering was, anybody think of it? Two words. I thirst. That was it. The cause of his immense terrifying sorrow was not about the coming physical cruelties. The source of his great sorrow unto death was spiritual, not physical. It had to do with his soul. You know what Psalm 69.1 says? I read to you earlier 69.20, but in 69.1 it says, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. He's speaking about soul sorrow. Isn't that what he said? My soul is exceeding sorrowful. It was the fact that his death was to be a sacrifice for sin that made Jesus agonize in a way that none of us can even begin to relate to. You see, his death was not at all a normal death. He would die as no man has ever died. And by that, I don't mean by way of crucifixion or, or persecution or even martyrdom. He would die as the sin bearer of all the sins of the entire world. And guess what was attached to that? A curse. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. He became a curse. Have you ever heard anyone put a curse on someone? Have you? Anybody? I mean, I've heard some vulgar languages, and, and there was a curse put on my father when he was an infant. I wasn't there to hear it, obviously, but there are people do curse. I mean, they curse, but then they also put curses. Well, Jesus literally, you can't see a curse, but he literally became a curse. And he literally became sin. You know, sin. Can you put sin in a box? No. He became sin for us. When the Lord entered the garden, he knew that the time had come for him to be made sin in our place. All of our sins were laid on him. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not just us in the room. That would be enough for me. That would do me away. Just your sins and my Just my sins would do me away. And put me away Eternally, right? But can you imagine the sins of the whole world? And here he was, perfectly innocent and infinitely holy, and yet judicially and by way of imputation, he was to be made the greatest offender that there ever was. You think of someone like Muammar Gaddafi and how horrible of a man he was. And... Um, Osama bin Laden and some of the others we've seen in, in our age. But put all those guys together and then all the rest of us who are pretty much goody two-shoes but we have all of our iniquity. Put the, everyone who's ever existed since Adam and Eve and put all that together and put that on someone who is infinitely holy. You know, it's, it's perfectly in line with his holy character that he would not will it wasn't his will that he become what he hates. It really wasn't a sin that he didn't want to become sin and a curse. 
We should expect nothing less from someone who was so perfect and so holy. His soul was repulsed by the knowledge that he would take upon himself the full magnitude and the defilement of all mankind's combined iniquities. As he looked deeply into the stinking cesspool of human sin and depravity, all that is evil and gross and profaned, profane, what did he do? He groaned to the very pit of his soul. He smelled the foul, disgusting odor. And he saw the rising poisonous fumes of the cup that he would have to consume to the very last dregs for our freedom. And guess what? It repulsed him. It nauseated him. Even one tiny sin imputed to him was utterly repugnant to an infinitely holy and perfect person. But to take every sin of every offender ever committed for all human history, past, present, future, was a sorrow burden unto death for him. You know what it says in Isaiah 53.10? You know, Jewish people won't read Isaiah 53. The Jewish rabbis won't let their people read Isaiah 53. It says, God made his soul an offering for sin. His soul was our guilt offering. Wow. So there was the sin bearer grief that caused Jesus' sorrow. But you know what? There was, as we talked about earlier, was even a greater grief than that. As if that wouldn't be enough. Literally becoming sin. Literally becoming a curse. But there's more than that. He knew that by becoming mankind's sin substitute, he would not only encounter the separation of his soul from his body, but he would also encounter the separation of his soul from from God, the Father. And the contemplation of his separation from God the Father for those hours on the cross when God had to forsake him, God had to turn his back on him because he literally became sin incarnate. And it says in Isaiah 53, and you might never have understood this before, and you might think it sounds cruel, but it says it pleased God to crush him. Why? Because God is so infinitely holy, there was this satisfaction, there was this pleasure in crushing sin for all mankind so that we could be in his presence. It pleased him to do that. But he had to do that as a holy, just God. He had to turn his back on sin incarnate. And that knowing that, Can you imagine being omniscient and knowing everything to come to pass? That extremely troubled Christ. He had never, ever known anything but intimate fellowship with his Father, with the Holy Trinity. There had never been an interruption in the the bliss of his Father's fellowship. So to him, the loss of that fellowship meant infinite suffering. You know what? In those hours on the cross when the sky became dark and nobody was able to see what was going on, he suffered an eternity of separation from his father. 
in those hours. And this is something that we cannot even begin to enter into. Is your mind struggling to try? Maybe we can get a glimpse, but with our finite minds, we can't enter into this. You know, being sinful all of our lives, being born with a sin nature, and having lived in a world full of sin gives us very little concept of the immense agony that the separation from God the Father would cause God the Son. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. You're getting a picture of the magnitude of his love for us, that he was willing to do this? So the anguish of the Lord was so intense, it was literally enough to kill him. You know, it is possible for people to die from sorrow. People have died from a broken heart. Just as it's possible for people to, to die from other strong emotions like anger or fear. You know, literally to be scared to death. <clears throat> Therefore, in total acknowledgement of his human needs, Jesus did what his disciples saw no need to do. If they'd been smart, they would have, but <laughs> they weren't. And so he removed themselves, himself from the three men that he had taken with him, a stone's cast a little further into the garden, and he instructed them to watch, and he went a little further, and what does it say he did? Verse 39, he fell on his face and prayed. Now, remember we discussed his posture in prayer at the beginning of his high priestly prayer when he lifted up his face to heaven and looked right into the Father's face? Well, here we have prayer posture that, again, is very interesting and very telling. Each one of the synoptic writers gives us a slightly different posture. Now, remember, he has three prayer sessions, so they're not contradicting each other. But one says that he kneeled down. That was Luke. Mark says he fell on the ground. Matthew says he fell on his face. It simply means that his posture, um, and this describes his posture, you know, at various times during his three different prayers. I thought it was interesting, was just a side note, but you know how he prayed three times? Um, and who else prayed three times for something to be taken away and got a no? Remember Paul prayed, you know, that the, the thorn in the flesh? So it's not wrong. I thought about this. It's not sinful for us to be agonizing in prayer and be weeping and crying our eyes out to the Lord. That's not sinful. Don't think that you're sinful and you're not trusting if you're weeping and crying and you're brokenhearted. Here he was. And it's not sinful to say, this is my will, Lord. I would really, really like this. And like three times, go to the Lord, you know, and go, like Paul did and like the Lord Jesus did here. But always we should add what? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's likely that first he kneeled, and then in the fervency of his praying, when the sorrow of his soul was overwhelming, he fell on his face on the ground. And what these postures in prayer tell us is really twofold. It speaks, number one, of his humility, and number two, of his pain. His, he took a lowly position here before his father, right? This is why John doesn't include it, because here is the submissive servant. Not, you know, we don't see him so much in his deity here as the submissive servant. He was submitting to his father's will. And it also speaks of his hurt, his humility and his hurt, his pain. Lying prostrate on the ground on his face tells us that the Lord Jesus truly was hurting. 
In fact, the verb that Mark uses for falling on the ground is given in the imperfect tense, which means that he did it repeatedly. He'd get back up on his knees, I guess, and then he'd go back down, fall on his face again. Well, he'd go to check on his men and they're sleeping, and he'd come back and then he'd fall on his face again. So it shows us the desperate nature of the struggle in which he was engaged. He literally prostrated himself on the ground. Have you ever been so broken that you've done that? You just prostrate yourself on the ground, your face on the ground, and you're praying. His burden was so heavy. It's really what the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 119.25 when he said, My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Well, not only do we have three positions of the Lord in prayer given to us by each of the three synoptic writers, but they also give us three different titles that the Lord used to speak of his Father. In Matthew, he referred to God as, Oh, my Father. And the my is emphasized, speaking of uh, the personal nature of their relationship. In Mark, he says, and I didn't read Mark, but when you go home and read Mark's account of this, he says, Abba, Father. So there, Abba is Aramaic for what? Father or Daddy. Again, he's, this is an emphasis uh, regarding the endearment and trust in the relationship the two of them have. He's, saying, he's basically saying, Daddy, Father. And uh, then in Luke, he simply says, Father. And again, there's no contradiction. It merely means that he prayed for a while. And in the length of his prayer, he repeatedly called out to his father by these various titles. We uh, know from Matthew and Mark's gospel that the Lord had three sessions of prayer. We didn't know that from Luke, but from Matthew and Mark we do. He was diligent in his prayer. And it tells us that he spoke the same words. In other words, he asked for the same thing like Paul over and over again. It wasn't, however, vain repetition because there was nothing vain about his request. His heart was fully in what he was saying. You know what vain repetition is? Just saying the same thing over and over and over again and not even really thinking about it, but just repeating it. And what was it that he prayed for repeatedly and earnestly? Well, if we put all three accounts together, here's what we have. O oh, Father, let this cup pass from me. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Mark fourteen thirty six. Father, remove this cup from me. Luke twenty two forty two, and Mark fourteen thirty nine tells us that he prayed that the hour might pass from him. Now, the cup, in the Old Testament, the cup was often to use, used to speak of great judgment. For example, Jeremiah was told by God, Take the wine cup of his fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. Now, I could give you a whole lot of other references, but for time's sake, I'm not going to do that. It's widely agreed that the cup referred to the divine wrath of God being manifested against sin in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. The hour is simply another reference to the crucifixion. The cup and the hour are synonymous, basically. He's praying that the hour might pass from him. So basically he's saying, Oh my Father, Abba Father, Father, let this cup of your wrath pass from me. 
Take away this cup. Remove this cup. Pass this hour from me. The words are clear. Very, very clear. He was praying that the crucifixion be averted. That it be removed. That it perish. That it pass away. That it be canceled. That's what he's praying. And that part of his prayer. But here is the key to his prayer. Although he's praying for it to be canceled in his humanity, yet his request for cancellation was a qualified request. And the qualification for his cancellation request was the Father's will. And this qualification of the Lord's request puts a note of the highest nobility and integrity into a request that otherwise would seem really, really out of character for the Lord Jesus, wouldn't it? The noble priority that he specifies in his prayers was the will of God. Putting all of them together, again, here's what he says. He says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Matthew. Nevertheless, not my will, but thou, as thou wilt. Matthew 26, 39. Matthew 26, 42. Thy will be done. Luke 22, 42. If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And this actually becomes the main petition of the prayer. The Lord was more concerned about the will of his Father being done than anything that he would prefer with regard to himself. In effect, he's asking his father, if there is any other way, and what did he say in one of them? All things are possible with you, father. If there is any other way for men and women and boys and girls to be saved, spared from spiritual death, if there is any other way apart from my separation from you on the cross, Please let it be. If there is a plan B, please let it be. If it is somehow possible for men to be saved apart from me becoming a sin and curse, a curse for them, let it happen. However, even as he prayed, he knew that the cross, sin, and the curse was all part of the mission. Remember back in John 12, 27? He said, what should I say? Father, you know, excuse me from this? I know it was for this reason I came into the world. He knew this. He knew as one of the eternal members of the triune Godhead that there was no other way. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He knew that, right? But his humanity asked anyway. He's 100% man, 100% God. His humanity asked anyway. And the victory for him was inevitable. Why? Because deity always triumphs over humanity. Always. This is why the Lord Jesus was impeccable. You know what that means? He could not sin. When he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan... Could he have succumbed to sin, to the temptation? No, he's impeccable because his deity nature 
always is victorious over his human nature. Therefore, he ended his prayer with the triumphant words, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. We need to be sure that we understand that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was not wrestling with God's will. Nor was he resisting God's will. He was in the process of yielding himself to God's will. And in this, he was absolutely victorious over even his fiercest foe. You know, Satan would have won everything if the Son of God had rebelled against his Father's will. Right? But instead, Satan lost everything. And it's interesting that Luke is the only one who tells us that God sent an angel to strengthen his son during his battle there in Gethsemane. Reminds me of when he was in the wilderness after 40 days and he had his encounter with Satan, his temptations, and then the Lord sent there angels to strengthen his son. Um, One man said this, he says, Every life has its wildernesses and its Gethsemanes. And every wilderness and Gethsemane has its angel. I like that. Well, Luke also was the only one to tell us. Remember, he was a physician. He is the only one who tells us that the Lord's sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And that literally is possible. There is a, um, a phenomenon, it's really rare, known by physicians as hematidrosis, where there can be such Im- immense emotional stress on someone that they actually experience a rupturing of the blood vessels in the sweat glands. And so this is what happened to the Lord. And whatever happened, it underscores for us the extreme suffering and the intensity and the fierceness of his battle there in Gethsemane. Don't think of Gethsemane as you see it in many of the picture Bible books, where Jesus is very peaceful, every hair in place, and um, his you know white robe, and he's there at a rock kneeling. Have you ever seen pictures like that of him in Gethsemane? Erase that from your mind completely. I've never seen an artist's rendering that was appropriate, but if it was, you'd see Jesus' blood on his white garments. Did did the disciples notice that when they came back from the prayer time, that he had blood on it already, even before the scourging? He sweat drops of blood. And I'm sure his hair was disheveled, and his face was in agony. And it should be a picture. Well, there shouldn't be a picture, I don't think, of this. I think the veil should be over this. But he would have been prostrate on his face, on the ground, completely different than that peaceful, serene picture of him at that rock that I've seen. Um, Gethsemane was a place of battle. It was the place of battle for the Lord. It is said that Calvary's victory was actually won in Gethsemane. Because at Golgotha, you know, Calvary, Golgotha, which was the place of the cross, the Lord yielded his body. But at Gethsemane, he yielded his will. So where did he win the victory? At Gethsemane. And this is why Paul could say he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Well, I hate to end on a sad note, but the sad note, and (laughs) we could make a whole lesson out of this, but please make sure you read your books. The disciples, that's the sad note, the disciples had not used their opportunity to watch and pray 
very well at all, did they? They wasted their opportunity and they neglected their duty. Their spirits were willing, but their flesh was weak. And they would never, ever again have the opportunity to help their Lord, you know, to to be compassionate to Him as He had been so compassionate with them. They lost that opportunity to help Him in the great crisis of His life before the cross. They could have been there with Him, strengthening Him. But because they weren't, God had to send an angel. Just think, they could have taken the place of the angel. When opportunity is passed, it's usually gone forever. And because they had neglected to pray, they were going to be not going to be prepared for the temptation that was coming. Every time he came back, they were sleeping, so finally he just let them sleep. And the next thing they knew, he's saying, Rise up, let us go, he that betrayeth me is at hand. You see, without having spent their time watching and praying, they were going to be in for a very shameful time. They would all flee, they would all forsake their master. Spiritual sleepers are not properly prepared for the hour of crisis. But in total contrast to his men, the Lord, who had been prostrate on his face in anguishing prayer beneath the olive trees, came forth from his crisis with serene tranquility and renewed strength. He came out victorious. In fact, his prayer time in Gethsemane so strengthened him that he didn't wait for his enemies to come and get him. He went forth to meet them. And next week we are going to see the king in control. Let's pray. Father, Gethsemane is an extremely practical place in the life of the believer. The problem in our lives is that it, it too often takes us far longer than just an hour or two as with the Lord to yield to your will. Sometimes it takes us years of agony. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. And we might wonder why there's no joy or victory in our lives. Father, I would pray if any of us are at a point in our lives where we are very agitated or or maybe even bitter toward God or anxious or deeply sorrowful, almost to the point of despair of life itself, it may be, it may be that we're still only in the first part of this prayer, the the part where we're praying, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want it. I can't face this, Lord. Maybe we've remained far too long in this, in this first part of the prayer, in this stage. And what we need to do now is to just go ahead and yield ourselves fully, even if we don't understand everything that you're doing. I pray that we would just get to the point where we're willing to say, Nevertheless, not my will, Lord, but thine be done. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.